0: get your quote today at progressivecom to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law
1: you're listening to the odds and audibles podcast I'm Matt Pra Eric Scofield is with me as always and before we dive into this show I want to remind duck territory listeners if you or listeners of just this podcast if you're not a subscriber you can join for one month for $1. After that it goes to $9.95. Inside scoop, expert analysis. You get to read all the content across just, not just duckterritory.com, but the entire 24-7 sports network. Uh, and once you go back to regular pricing after your first month, you get CBS All Access for free. That's 10,000 shows, live sports, movies, uh, all on demand, all available for you for free, uh, on the C, the All Access CBS platform. Now, Eric, um, this is a show where we're going to talk a little bit of men's basketball. We're going to talk a little bit of women's basketball. We've got some thoughts on the Oregon football program from an NFL pro draft perspective. Uh, lots to get to on this show. and Let's go back, though, and kind of just recap and, and get some opinions here on Oregon's From the men's side, an impressive 68-60 comeback victory at home against number 16 Colorado, a game in which, to be frank, it was a must win. This was a game in which if Oregon wanted to win the league and win their Pac-12 regular season championship, they had to have this game because Colorado sat one game up in the Pac-12 standings. Colorado had... Uh, won the previous matchup between these two teams so if Oregon w- was to lose, they would fall two games back with six games to play and Colorado would have a two game lead and the tiebreaker over Oregon basically making it extremely difficult for them to come back and win and yet and it looked that's it looked like that's the direction things were gonna go. Uh, Oregon trailed by 14 points. In the, in the first half, at one point they trailed by 12 points early on. In the second half, uh, I think Colorado got going. The first basket of the game for Colorado was a was a Gatling three pointer to put them up 38 to 26. And Oregon kind of made a little bit of a run early on. Got you know Richardson hit a three pointer and, and they were down by eight. Uh Juicen added a jumper, and next thing you know they were down by six. Uh, and then Richardson made another three pointer, and they were down by five with just under 14 minutes to play. And then, it, and then it got really close. Then they were down by three points after CJ Walker made two free throws with 13:04 to play. But then, in less than 30 seconds, Colorado hit back-to-back three pointers. Uh, Sean Schwartz, Lucas C, each hit a hit one, and Oregon was back to, to trailing. By nine points with 12 minutes to go in the game, Oregon called a timeout. And it just really felt like at that moment it was like, oh boy, is Oregon going to be able to, to make a run and and to find a way to win this game? And you know, Colorado has had an answer for every single run that Oregon has had. In the first half, Oregon had like seven minutes of action without any points, not just field goals, just no points. And it just, it just didn't feel right. And all of a sudden things clicked and I think Oregon played their best stretch of basketball in the season. They close with a 28 to 11 run in the game's final 11 minutes and 32 seconds. They close out another, another run within that run, a 15 to two run in the final five okay. minutes of the game. Oregon walks away with a 68 60 victory and Now, like what Dana Altman said after the game, they control their own destiny going forward to win the Pac-12 championship.
0: Matt has a great story up on the website about the significance of this one, Matt, and and I think you did a great job of putting it together in terms of this feels now like Oregon could be in position here to get a run started. You know, the the traditional Dana Altman run every spring seems to be happening right around this time, right around Valentine's. For whatever reason, it seems like they kind of get going and we – Talked earlier this week about the possibility uh, of that happening here, and like you said, it felt like for you know 25 maybe 30 minutes of, of game time last night that it, that, that that just wasn't going to happen. That Colorado was going to win this game, take full control in the Pac-12, Oregon was going to lose a third straight, a- and then it, something something changed. And I know you you talked about it in the story, but I think when Oregon went a little smaller in that second half and they got a little more aggressive in terms of extending pressure. That's when things seemed to change, and I thought Addison Patterson was really, really significant in that last eight minutes or so of of regulation. What did you see there, and and in Patterson in particular? I know he only has you know you look at the box score and you aren't blown away, but what 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 did you see from him? And and it feels like now Oregon has really gotten contributions, impact twelve play, you know, game determining contributions from almost every player on its roster. Patterson being being one uh, most recently.
1: Yeah, Patterson played just 12 minutes, yet he had the biggest impact on the game. Dana Altman said afterwards that he played really, really well. What really stood out to him was that he had a he had a ton of positive moments. But Altman said he couldn't recall a single negative moment. He said normally a guy yeah. will, will come in and he'll play really well and and he'll he'll have let's just say. 10 moments in a game where, where it's a positive moment, but then he'll have six moments that are negative and it and you just get a, a positive plus four. Um, Altman mentioned that Patterson, he didn't have a single negative moment in the entire 12 minutes that he played. He played 10 minutes in the second half and he finished the game with a, a positive plus minus of 14. That's the highest uh, of anyone on, on Oregon's roster. And it's the highest of anyone in the game uh and it was and you look at it you're right yeah six points he had one rebound in this when was in this game he had two assists he had two fouls he shot three or four from the field he missed a free throw uh he'd had three steals and i i think that's where he made a huge impact because he he had some good drives he 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 scored the game the basket that put oregon up by five and really kind of Felt like the nail in the coffin for, for Colorado on a dunk. He had a big opportunity where he got to the lane and, and finished through contact for a layup and, and, was fouled and got them close. And then, uh, I think that brought them within four points. And then Will Richardson grabbed his missed rebound and he scored another layup and they were down by two or, or so. I think that, that's what the, the point was, but Patterson was just huge and, and because Oregon went with four guards. And I, I said it on the podcast earlier this week. that I felt like Oregon's best style of play would be pressing and trapping in the perim- um, in the backcourt. And then when an opponent crossed half court to try and push them to the corners and to the wings and trap again. And that's exactly what Oregon did against Colorado. Their, their press and their trap was just suffocating. Colorado could not handle it and Tad Boyle of the head coach of Colorado, for whatever reason, when Oregon went small and played four guards, they, they usually rotated in with Richardson, Pritchard, and Patterson, and then either Anthony Mathis or Chris Duarte. Duarte eventually fouls out of the game. But that, that that was for the four guards that they were playing with. And then it was a rotation of Shakur Justin, um, Chandler Lawson, C.J. Walker, and Francis Shakuro at the center spot, most of it being C.J. Walker and, and Shakur Houston in in that second half. And Tad Boyle, for whatever reason, never really adjusted to call to Oregon's decision to do that because defensively they had four really long, athletic guys out on the court that were hounding defensively, getting deflections and getting steals and. Know, poking the ball from behind as a big man brings the ball up in, in, in a fast break situation, but the, offensively, it put Evan Batty, Colorado's center, who's six foot eight and two hundred and like seventy pounds, uh, matched up against the guard, and he literally could not—he just did not have the foot speed to stay in front of whoever Oregon put on him. You know, and I was really surprised Tad Boyle eventually didn't. Adjust to, to Oregon's four man lineup with another guard. Um, be, and that was the difference in the game because all of a sudden Oregon got driving lanes. They, they found ways to get contact and for free throws. And then when one of the driving lanes opened up, that opened up their shooters in the second half on the three point line and Oregon shot five of 12 on threes. Richardson hit th- all three of his, Pritchard hit a big one and Anthony Mathis hit a big one. And I, I, I just think that. The decision to go with the press and Oregon's gonna, Oregon cannot play the four guard lineup for 40 minutes. They're not gonna be able to do that. But to play it in spurts of four or five minutes here and there, and then when they do have their two forwards out there to continue to press like they did, because they closed the game with Patterson, Richardson, and Math, and uh, and Pritchard out on the court with with Justin and CJ Walker once Duarte fouled out. And they continued to press because Walker's Uber athletic as well at the top. I think that's going to be how this team plays elite defense. By shoveling and 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 shuttling the, the opponent into their traps, into their presses. And then if they do if they do break it, Force everything into the middle first to try and get a, a tip, a deflection from behind, and then once they cross half court and, and start initiating their offense, push the ball to the to the corners and to the wings where you can trap again. Because against Colorado, a team that is full of veterans, they're they were the 16th best team in the country, the highest in the Pac-12, they were first in the league. They had an all, they had an all conference player and McKinley Wright. And they could not handle Oregon's press. I mean, it was evident that when Oregon could set their press, they were by far the better team between the two.
0: We now look up at the Pac-12 standings, and gosh, it's cramped up at the top. Oregon and Colorado now tied at 8-4. and four. Arizona and Arizona State at 7-4. and four. We should mention the Sun Devils are quickly making a, a run here. They were 1-3 to start, I think, conference play. They've won 6-7. of seven.
1: Yeah, the only game they lost is to Oregon.
0: Yeah, I think that Oregon loss is kind of the only one in there. So uh, they're quietly right there, and then right below them, the LA schools, USC, UCLA, one game back of Colorado and Oregon at seven and five. Um, Stanford struggling still, and, and then you've got the rest of the conference at below 500. But uh, you look at this win, Matt, and like you said to start the show, this was critical for the Pac-12 standings. If Oregon right now had lost last night; they would be seven and five. They would be in this. They would be tied with USC and UCLA. They'd actually. Um, be uh, behind the arizona schools as well obviously they've played less games but i guess you look up now at the conference standings and we've got a third of the league play still to be had there's six more games left um the schedule is favorable for oregon i think we can we can both agree on that uh, what, what you know i guess how, how do you handicap the way the rest of the season in terms of the conference can play out you feel pretty confident oregon has kind of righted the ship here uh and is going to be able to to maybe win the conference with maybe five losses, or, or are you still kind of – is this just not enough yet to really have a clear idea of what you're going to see from the Ducks from here on out? Because I think a couple times this season we've been like, okay, they've got something figured out. You know, After that L.A. weekend, there was a lot of confidence that they kind of had things ter- figured out and turned around, and then they, they struggled the last week, you know, a couple weeks after right. that. Kind of – what's your mindset right now with this team? Well, I think
1: they've figured out what works best for them now. Um, and now it's can you – Can you do that instead of for just 12 minutes in a game? Can you do that for a full 40? Can you do that for for 35 minutes? Can you play at that level for the length of an entire game? And if you can, then, yeah, I I don't think they'll lose the rest of the way. If they play like they did in the final 12 minutes of that game against Colorado, they're not going to lose the rest of the season. They're going to win the regular season championship, and they're going to win the conference championship if they play like that. Now, that's easier said than done. Yeah. you have to go to Arizona State you have to go to Arizona you play Stanford you play Oregon State and you have, you 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 play Colorado, a Cal team that that's going to slow the pace down at home and then your next game is Utah a team that gave you some fits on you know at their place earlier in the year um so it's easier said than done but i think they they've now figured things out uh in terms of how they can play guys are saying that you know they're starting to, you know, things are starting to come a little easier now and they're adapting a little bit and, you know, they're, they're, they're giving a full buy-in to what Oregon's coaches are, are, are preaching. Um, so I think the confidence is high in that they are the best team that they can win the league and the schedule certainly helps them because four out of their next six games are at home. Utah this week and they go on the road for the final two games of the season – uh, for road games. They play at ASU on Thursday, they play at Arizona Saturday night on ESPN and then they come home for a one week for a one game uh, one week series against Oregon State on a Thursday and then they close out the season at, at home against Cal on a Thursday and then Saturday night against Stanford. I think if they go if, if they go five and one, they'll probably finish tied for first and have the tiebreaker. Uh, maybe even went out. If, if, if they go four and two, now you're, you're more than likely talking. They're going to share the title with somebody or they're going to sit half game back out of first place. There's some huge games that are can be played. You know, Oregon is, they have to root for Oregon State on Saturday afternoon, uh, Saturday evening, excuse me. You have to root for Stanford Saturday night. Um, the Beavers play Colorado, the Cardinal play Arizona. Those are two teams. You want OSU, you want Stanford to win those games, uh, to give you a little bit more separation. Uh, Oregon has to go into the the Arizona schools and get a split if they want to win the conference. Um, there's another, there's another game that week, uh, USC travels to Colorado that will help in, in either way. Uh, probably, probably you want USC to win that one just because, uh, Oregon played them once this season and they've got the win. So, uh, you have the tiebreaker outright with, with the Trojans, but Oregon controls their destiny. That was what Dane Altman said after the game was that they come out of that game now knowing that they're on top. They're in first place. There's no one ahead of them. Yes, they're sharing it with Colorado right now, but there's no one literally in, in front of them and they control their destiny. If, if they do what they're supposed to do, they will be Pac-12 champions. They will, and and it's out there now. And they just have to go out and take it. I I think they're going to do it. Um, this team certainly has had some Jekyll and Hyde moments this season, but it, it it's not going to be easy sledding for them to win this league. Uh, it's it's gotten it's improved, and I, I don't think this Oregon team, as of yet, has played to their full potential for multiple games in a row for a consistent full game.
0: You mentioned. A 5-1 and one finish here in conference play probably seals it. That would mean winning all the home games and splitting on the road. We, we should note that in terms of how Oregon's success this season, they are undefeated at home, 13-0, and, and they are 6-6 six and six away from home. So that kind of sets you up that maybe the expectation should be split. they take care of business at home and then they split away from home because that's sort of what this team has done. And like you said, I, I think you look at the remaining conference schedule outside of Oregon, if that does take place and you look up and they finish 13-5 and five in Pac-12 play, I think they're going to be, at the very least, the number one seed in the Pac-12 tournament, if not outright Pac-12 champions, um, which would be pretty darn impressive considering kind of the up-and-down nature um, of Pac-12 play for Oregon this season. Like we've said, they're very, very good at home. They struggled on the road, lost to a couple teams they probably shouldn't have. From an overall resume perspective, Matt, This win was pretty significant. This is their sixth quad one win. Uh, Colorado was number fifteen in the net ranking coming into yesterday. Oregon stays at twenty five, which is interesting because they do beat they get a number they get a quad one win over the fifteenth ranked net ranking team and they don't move up. But still, they're they're right there in terms of the NCAA tournament. Do you think this helps Oregon that much, or is this just one that they needed to win to avoid maybe dropping another seed line? Kind of, what do you think this does in terms of post? I
1: think it doesn't it doesn't necessarily maybe help them. In terms of a seed line, yeah, they probably didn't. They probably didn't move up or or down, obviously because of it. But it does help them sit in the Spokane pod. You know that that's where it's it's important because going into this week, a lot of projections didn't have them playing in Spokane, didn't have them playing in Sacramento, and I think winning that game kind of puts Oregon back in a in a place where okay, they're probably going to be the team that wins a league and they've done enough now to get back into the Spokane or the Sacramento pods. And so now you're playing, can you get into the West region? I don't don't know where the bracketologists have Oregon um, placed right now. I think I've seen one right now that has them in the Midwest, uh, but they are playing in Spokane. And that's, that's the big thing. You you know, treat it like a four, you know, like a two game season, get, get the best case scenario you can get uh, for for that first two rounds. Two rounds, of the NCAA tournament, and that's by playing in Spokane. And then if you can't play in Spokane, play in Sacramento. And and ideally, you can get yourself back into the West region uh, and, and play there. And I think there's going to be that's if, if they beat Utah this week, this weekend, that's probably going to be starting to shift again. We're going to probably go back into the West if so they get a split in in the Arizona schools. You know that will help them get back into the West. If they get a sweep of the Arizona schools on the road, then they're certainly in the West. I I think this team can climb as high as probably the three seed, um, and 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 they can get into that West bracket. I mean, right now, um, I'm looking at one bracket, and the West's top four seeds are Gonzaga number one, and then Louisville number two, West Virginia number three, and Butler number four. So, you know, there's There's some teams that you can get in there. If if you can get into that top 10 range and get your net ranking into the top 15 or so, you're going to have preference and be put in the West Coast. I think that's kind of what they're playing for. Get into that West region and get into a Spokane or a Sacramento pod. All right. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to the and Audible's podcast. Alright, welcome back. You're listening to the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Breen. Eric Scopo is with me as always. And huge game for the women, for the men last night against Colorado at home. Equally as important, equally as huge, probably even bigger, to be honest with you, uh, are the women. The women play a top 10 showdown against UCLA tonight on the road in a game in which Eric, this carries a lot of significance for Pac-12 Championship, and Pac-12 Tournament
0: C. It kind of goes maybe overlooked here, um, but you're right, because if Oregon loses this game, they're 11-2 in Pac-12 play, and if UCLA wins this game, they're 11-2 in Pac-12 play, and obviously UCLA would have the head-to-head. This is the only meeting between the schools. That would mean suddenly Oregon no longer really controls its destiny. UCLA would have an opportunity to win the conference, not outright, but to at least have the head-to-head and be that number one seed when, when the program's head to Vegas early next month. Um, this game is really, really big, and it's kind of it, – it's funny because Oregon just continues every week to play like a top-10 program. I mean, you go back you go back and look at what they've been doing over the course of the last six weeks or so, and it's like every single weekend they're playing a team that's at least ranked, and it's, it continues this week, and UCLA – um, Oregon has played some really, really good teams. UCLA might be the best team they've played so far. Um, you look at what they've done. Um, you know, they, they really haven't, aside from a really strange loss on the road at Arizona where they got beaten pretty bad, lost by 26 points. So that's no, notable for UCLA. Aside from that, they've been, I think, the, clearly the second best team in the conference so far. Um, they beat Stanford, which is not easy to do at Stanford. Um, and, and they've been very, very consistent otherwise. So, This is a huge game and I still think you've heard me say this in the podcast a number of times. If Oregon plays its A game, they're undoubtedly the best team. And I think this team is so veteran. They're, they're led by Sabrina Inescu, Ruthie Heber, Minyan Moore, uh, you know, Satu Sabli. These players have all been here and in these moments and have succeeded in the past. I would just be really stunned if Oregon is not up for the task here, but I do think UCLA has the talent to at least contend and make this game competitive. Oregon has not played quite as well on the road. As they played at home, obviously, um, you know, you, of course, the last three times they were on the road, they beat UConn by 18 and then they absolutely blasted the mountain school. So there was some improvement there, but I still think you go into this game going like you feel really, really good about Oregon winning. I think, I think they're just clearly the class of the conference. To me, they're the best team in the country without question. Um, but you just don't know. And, and you still has Michaela Anionwari, who you could probably make a case is the best player. Not at Oregon in the Pac-12. She was ranked. Right, you know, it's it's funny to say that, but it's the truth. You know, you, you look at ESPN just ranked the top 25 players in the country. Three of the top five are on Oregon's team. Um, you know, which is just remarkable. But Michaela Anjuniwari was ranked 12th there. Kelly Graves said that was about six spots too low when we spoke with him on Wednesday. Uh, said she's one of the six or seven best players in the co- in the country. You look at her statistically; she's a 20 point per game, eight rebound per game player for UCLA. She is, he compared her to, you know, Giannis Antuka Kakombo from Milwaukee Bucks, you know, probably the best NBA player just in terms of the variety, the versatility that she provides. This is going to be a really tough matchup for Oregon. I don't know if Oregon really has a player, um, you know, it, I guess it'll be Satu Sabali. It'll probably be a really good test to see how she can defend her because Sabli has drawn a lot of praise recently for how she's played on, on the defensive side of the court. Ani probably the best player that she'll have faced all season. Um, from that, you know, from that perspective, gonna be a game I think Oregon will be challenged. I'm not expecting this to be another 30 to 40 point win like we're, we're so accustomed to seeing. I think they will be challenged, but ultimately I'm expecting Oregon to win and in doing so, uh, really take, uh, a commanding lead in the conference. And then it really becomes a one game season from there because Stanford, uh, on the 24th in Palo Alto really becomes the only other game that matters for the Ducks in the schedule because I just think you look at the rest of the league and go, they're not gonna be challenged by anyone else.
1: Looking at this game, I, I mean, I, you're right in that UCLA seems to have really flown under the radar. They were picked fourth in the Pac-12 preseason women's basketball pool, but they didn't get a first place vote. And and maybe it's just me being naive here, but I just didn't think they were gonna be, they were supposed to be good. Like, and when I mean good, as in top ten good. Like, I I just wasn't expecting that. And maybe that's just An uninformed opinion of mine, but they're, I think one of the better stories of the Pac-12 women this season because not only are they winning, but they're winning at a high level and they're in the top 10 in the country and they've got really good players. For you, yes, Oregon is the best player, is the best team. They have the best player. They have, they have have probably the best three players in the Pac-12 on their roster. But nonetheless, this is a road game In, in sports. You play better at home than you play on the road. Traditionally, what's the key for the women here to go into Poly Pavilion and walk out of there with a win in that you really kind of make things really simple, beat Stanford next week and you win the conference?
0: I'm going to give you three things. I think first it's getting off to a quick start. Um, We've seen this team. Actually, really not this last weekend against the Arizona schools, even though those were blowout wins. They started kind of slow in those games, but especially um, in the three games on the road they won the previous week over Colorado, Utah, and then UConn. All those games, they had great starts, really strong first quarters, kind of put a foot down, show that they were the better team and that they were going to have to be you know, outplayed significantly over the last three quarters of the game to be beaten. And I think the opponents in those games, I don't want to say they folded, but they kind of went, boy, this is going to be a tall task to come back. I think if they can do that, to UCLA, who frankly hasn't been challenged. I shouldn't say they haven't been challenged, but they've been, they've been on a really hot streak here. Yeah, they've been winning a lot of games. They've been doing, uh, they've been doing so pretty impressively. If they can go out and I think get off to a quick start, that, that, that's pivotal. Uh, the other one I, I mentioned, Michaela Anyanwari, if she, you have to find a way to slow her down. And I think it is going to be Satu on her. That's going to be a, an absolutely pivotal matchup. Can, can the six foot four Sauble, who's a couple inches taller than Anyanwari, can, can she kind of, Mitigate everything she can do. Can she stop her from getting to the lane? Can she stop her from getting shots around the basket? Because despite being about six foot one, Anya Mori does play, um, kind of around the basket more than you would expect for a player of her, her, height. height. She's versatile. She can play in the perimeter, certainly, but she's pretty devastating down there. Um, and then I think finally it's, if Oregon can just, you know, in general, find their, find their shooting, you know, it, this is a team when, when they are hot, especially from three point range, It's pretty much over. And if they can get their shooters going, I think we saw that especially against Arizona State where they were 13, I think for 25 from three point range in that game, especially really, really good in the second half. You saw Aaron Bowley get it going. You saw Jazz Shelley get it going. If they can get those players to, to really step up and hit some big three point shots and they don't, they don't probably even need to shoot 50%, but if they can hit 10 threes and do so at about a 40% clip, I think that's going to be basically enough to beat UCLA. They can just kind of spread the court out, hit their threes, and part of that is going to be having some success down low with Ruthie Hebert to kind of create those shots. But I think that's pivotal, pivotal is just spreading the court out, hitting some open shots, getting some other players involved, and not making it a game where it's, okay, Satu Saboli and, and Sabrina and Escu are going to have the ball in their hand and they're going to have to make plays to win. Um, not that that's a particularly bad strategy considering those are two of the four best players in the country based, you know, according to ESPN. But to me, that's the one where you say they might be able to put Adria Priest-Dean on, and Yunescu. she's one of the better defenders in the conference and make things difficult. And they might be able to put an onion worry on a Saboli and make things difficult. Um, and, and, and then it becomes, can you, you know, can your star player beat them one on one? And I think Oregon's capable of that, but that, I think that makes things more difficult in terms of figuring out a way to win this game.
1: Let's shift gears here for a second, and let's go to football. Recently, the NFL Combine participant list was released, and I don't know about you, Eric, but I was not expecting seven players from Morgan's roster to be included. I mean, there were the obvious ones, Justin Herbert, Troy Dye, Calvin Throckmorton. Um, I thought some combination of Shane Lemieux... Jake Hansen and Jawan Johnson and Jacob Breland would make the the group. But I was not expecting all of them. I thought someone or multiple guys from that that quartet would not make it. And yet here we are, seven guys. I think it's most in the Pac-12 for for participants from the Pac-12 and from one school. A, just real quick. Does that surprise you?
0: I think so. Um, you know, it, it, it's always hard to know exactly. We watch these players play, and especially these seniors, for a long time. And, and we become accustomed to how they play. And we think that they're very good players. But sometimes it's hard to really get a feel for what their pro perspectives is, especially offensive linemen. Um, I think seeing all three of those seniors on there, to me, maybe was a bit surprising. I think it was deserving. I think those are three, you know, future long-term NFL offensive lineman in Lemieux Hansen and Throckmorton, but I maybe didn't expect all of them. And I think Juwan Johnson is the one in particular that I look at and go like, he's a player who has such clear talent at the NFL level. We'll talk more about him in a second here, I think. But it was it was like, what, what do you make of his career and time at Oregon? I mean, he missed about a third of the season. He had a couple of really good games. We also had games where he was pretty quiet Um you know, he for, for all of his physical tools, he was somewhat inconsistent ca- catching the football. He certainly had moments where he was very reliable and made big plays in big moments. Obviously, uh, the end of the game against was- Washington State, and the end of the game against Wisconsin, basically the entire USC game. But there were other times where he was kind of dodgy catching the football. I was maybe a little bit surprised to see that. I know when you brought him in, you were hopeful that this would be the kind of player he'd be and that he'd have this kind of potential. But he also left Penn State. In a way where it was kind of like, is he going to be somebody that's an NFL caliber player? Um, I think actually, in the long term, the fact that he was able to grad transfer from Penn State and go to Oregon uh, and 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 potentially have an NFL future is a selling point for Oregon on the recruiting trail because I think Juwan Johnson was a player when he arrived. There wasn't you know total certainty that that was the type of player he'd be uh, when he finished his time with Oregon.
1: Yeah, I I think Juwan Johnson is a guy that can make a lot of room, and I think obviously. Let's pivot here for a second. Um, player that has the chance to have the biggest impact on his draft stock for Oregon at the NFL Combine. I think the obvious answer for you and I, right, is Justin Herbert. Like, yeah, I mean, he shows up, and I, I, I I'm expecting him to have an extremely high score on the wonderlick test. I think he's going to score through the roof on the Agility testing, whether it's the bench press, the 40, the shuttle, all that stuff. I think he's, you know, the physical aspect of that combine. I think he's gonna just wow the scouts because he's a physical specimen at the quarterback position. But I think most importantly, teams are gonna watch him throw and go, "Oh my God, he's got a cannon!" Like he, it wouldn't surprise me if if Herbert all of a sudden. Well, maybe Herbert should be in the discussion as being the top quarterback selected or the second quarterback selected. Like, I don't think that's, I don't think he's going to be the first quarterback taken off the board. I don't think he's going to be the second quarterback taken off the board, but I pretty much guarantee you we're going to see somebody bring him up as maybe the second best quarterback uh, in this draft after the combine. Someone, you know, someone's going to kick the tires around that topic. Um so let's, we've gotten that out of the way. Now, among the other six players, in your eyes, who is someone out there that could really just enhance their draft stock with a strong performance at the combine?
0: I think it's hard, and maybe, maybe this is ignorance on my part, I think it's hard for an offensive lineman to blow you away at the combine, um, unless they're just a freak athlete. And I'm not, and maybe, and maybe I'm going to be shocked by the numbers that Lemieux, Hanson, and Doc Morton put up. But I'm not expecting any of those guys to just put up measurables that you're just like, holy crap, these guys are suddenly go from being maybe second or 3rd round picks to, man, these guys are going to go in the top 10 or top 20. I, I don't expect that to happen. I mentioned Juwan Johnson's name a, men- a moment ago, and, and that was sort of intentional because I do think he's the one who – I don't know what his 40-time is. I really don't. I, I don't know if he's going to run 4-5, if he's going to run 4-7, if he's going to run 4-4, but I do know if he does run – you know, at four 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 five, with his size at six four, two hundred and twenty-five, two hundred and thirty pounds, that's gonna be super impressive. And we all I think we're all aware of his physical intangibles being really impressive. I mean, he, that was the thing when he came to Oregon where it was pretty evident of like you just saw him walking through practice before we even saw him practice, just the body type was like, Holy crap, this guy's not like anyone Oregon has had to receiver in a while. I think he has a potential you mentioned with Justin Herbert, where you see him up in person, you see him throw a football. We've certainly See him throw you know, throw the football, and, and when you so when you see Justin Herbert sling the ball around, you're like, oh, holy crap, this is different. I think you could be it could be a similar thing with Jawan Johnson if he can go out there and, and score really well. You know, in terms of you said, you know, the agility drills, you know, straight line speed, three cone, um, you know, his vertical. All of those things, if, if he can go out and put up big numbers there, I could see that being something where he goes from being, Oh, right now, maybe he's going to be back into the draft to undrafted to, Hey, maybe he should be somebody we consider on that second day because from a physical and tangible perspective, he has, he has some real, real tools to work with. And maybe, maybe there's some work that needs to be done in other areas, but he's somebody that we can kind of mold. Maybe an NFL team will, will fall in love with him there. So that would probably be my pick just because I think the ceiling might be higher with him than any of the other guys besides Herbert.
1: I think Troy Dye is going to be someone that's going to make a lot of impressions because he's very good in space. Yeah. And he's very good in coverage skills and the NFL is going away from everyone running the ball 35 times a game and you know, just ground and pound and, and it's going to spread and offenses are spreading defenses out and it's putting a premium on finding guys. On defense that have the ability to stop the run and at the same time can be a threat in, the, in defending the pass. And Troy, that's Troy. Dye. I, I really think he kind of flew under the radar this season as a senior because that sounds crazy to say. Because from from just a statistical standpoint, it was one of his worst years at Oregon. And yet, I don't think that's even. Close to the level of, of play he had. I think he had his best season at Oregon in general. He just didn't have to cover up so many other mistakes that Oregon had, you know, th- defense had. Um, and so now I, I think Troy Dye is going to be a guy who, who maybe is, is someone that is a fifth or fourth round pick going into the combine that's going to score out really, really well and whether it's the, the, the physical testing or whether it's the football testing and improve his draft stock immensely. Um, and, and maybe go into that third or, or, you know, early fourth round pick for him. Um, one other guy I think that this combine is really important for is Jacob Breland because as crazy as it sounds, he was not by just like one mock draft, like there were multiple, a handful of mock drafts during the month of September and early parts of October that had Jacob Breeland projected as a first round draft pick at tight end. You know, we saw, we saw the tight, we saw the um, New England Patriots be a team that were projecting to draft him. A couple other teams, you know, throughout the mocks were then that's where he was landing. And then he got hurt and he kind of fell off the radar. And he was having statistically one of the best years in the country for a tight end. And I think, if he can show that he's healthy, that his injury, he's he's recovered from his injury. There's not going to be any long term effects. He could be a guy that goes from, you know, finding himself back into the into the mix of, of being picked in the middle rounds. I, I think this is going to be a big big period for him.
0: I like that one too, and, and I I think there's so much uncertainty there where there is that possibility for him to really make some improvements. And he is what you know. You just look at the NFL now, and you look at the teams that play in the Super Bowl. Both those teams had big time pass receiving tight ends, George Kittle for the Niners and Travis Kelsey for the Chiefs. I'm not sure if you can say Breland's ceiling is as high as those two because those might be the two best doing it right now or at least in the conversation, but Breland at 6'5", 250 with the way he can run and catch and, and, and move around on the football field and, and as a blocker, an improving blocker, we should say too. Um, he he does fit into that prototype and he will be an intriguing prospect because he is, like I said, just a really big body that can move and get downfield and improve um, a, a passing game for an offense because, again, that's a big part of what NFL teams are looking at. So I think that's another one. I think that's a good point there with Breeland in terms of, like, he fits what the NFL's trying to do. If he can prove he's healthy and he can fully recover and he can get back to the player he was for the first six or seven games for Oregon this last year, he can be a player that's undoubtedly drafted and maybe comes in and becomes a factor for an offense right away because he is that veteran-proven kind of commodity at tight end.
1: One other – no, is I the the, the Ducks are going to have their own combine, so I, I anticipate Herbert to throw in, in Indianapolis at, at the NFL combine, and then Oregon's going to have their own combine before that, or excuse me, after that, after uh, that. sometime yeah. in um, early mid March. Usually, it's kind of around when the Pac-12 tournament is going on, uh, so it's probably like March 13th or 14th usually is when. Um, Oregon will have their, their pro combine and I anticipate Herbert's going to throw at that one too. Um, and this, Eric, I, this is kind of funny. I've covered Oregon for 10 years now for football. I have not been to one single combine because I've been away covering Oregon basketball for every single one of them. So I've never been, but you have. I have. I'm <laughs> curious just. A, how many people show up and if Herbert's going to throw, I imagine every single NFL team's going to be there. I imagine ESPN's going to be there and they're going to televise. It could turn into a circus.
0: It could. And I've been, I've actually been to, I think five, four or five of them for Oregon and I, they've run the gamut of last year where I don't know, maybe there were 25 people there, uh, you know, 15 or so media and then, you know, 10 or so friends and family. Maybe it was 40. I mean, not much more than that. Um, and, and there were maybe 50% of the NFL scouts there just because Oregon didn't have a ton of big names in last year's NFL draft. But I've also been at the one where they had Dion Jordan, who was a top five pick. And I don't even think he did much of anything besides just show up and, and maybe do some bench press. But there was a ton of attention, and that one was televised. And they did have, I think the NFL network was there and, and had their own booth set up in the corner of the Casanova Center, as I recall. Um, th- to me, there, it, it could run a variety of things in, in different years. But this year does feel like it will be the one where, where, where it is more like that, where there is a ton of attention. And it's not, be- not just because of Herbert, but, of course, solely because of Herbert, because Oregon does have other players of interest there. I think there will be, I would expect to see just about everybody, every single NFL team represented. Um, and the days themselves have been, I'll be honest, like they've been kind of boring in the past. If I'm if I'm frankly just because like last couple times I've gone there hasn't been a ton of big time NFL talent at these things but this year will be a little different and I do think Herbert will throw because I just don't see him being a guy that won't want to do that especially with the fact that he's got Jacob Brelan there who I'm sure he'll want to throw the football yep. for and and Jawan Johnson Jawan Johnson I wouldn't be surprised I would you know I would not be surprised at all if like a Ryan Bay is also there trying to catch some scouts attention as a pass receiver um. We could see other – it's also yeah, – yeah. yeah, people also guys
1: forget are, that former Ducks, yeah. guys that haven't played at Oregon for a year, two, three years, they also show up trying to get, you know, eyes in front of scouts to get a, a free agent contract.
0: Yeah, last year I think we had Ifo Ekpreolimu was at it. Um, There were a couple of other players, I'm trying to think, that were there as well that were running routes. I think maybe Tony Brooks-James was there. But, yeah, there's there's been a variety of guys at these events. Um, And so it will be something to keep an eye on. And I think this year – Again, I, in the past couple of years, when there aren't that many big-time draft prospects, I'll be honest, they're not. These events aren't particularly exciting. They're, they're, they're kind of underwhelming because they don't immediately tell you the 40-yard dash time. So you're just kind of watching, going like, "I think that was pretty fast, but I don't know." But th- but an event this year where there are the big names, where there is a Justin Herbert headlining it, where where I think there will be more interest, um, it, it'll be a more exciting event. And so we will have full coverage. I guarantee we'll have myself and. Uh, depending upon when it is and a couple other people. It sounds like Matt's probably all, he's, I'm sure going to be in Las Vegas living it yes. up down there. but <laughs>
1: will not be there again. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of comical at this point of just, I've covered the team for so long and yet I've never been.
0: Yeah. Well, and, uh, I think this year will be a, a little bit more exciting than past years. It'll be fun to see uh, Justin throw the football around and, and if, and from us and myself, we talked about just what it's like to watch him sling the ball around. It is unlike anything in terms of other quarterbacks I've seen up in up close and personal he has such immense and obvious arm talent watching him throw live probably for the first time at least that close for me is going to be something I will enjoy and and, and just kind of remember the special talent he was at Oregon to be kind of the last chance to to see him perform probably an Oregon caller's at an Oregon event um in his career so uh a, a kind of a cool way to close it out for him but also a way where he's Probably doesn't necessarily need to take part in it. He'll probably have a pretty good idea after the NFL combine what he'll mean. But I guarantee he will be involved because he'll want to help out some of his good friends and and guys like Breland Bay and, and Juwan Johnson.
1: All right. That's going to do it for us on the Austin Audible's podcast. On Monday, look for a podcast. Eric and I are going to kind of discuss a little bit about the Colorado opening. And there's been some ties for Andy Avalos to to that job. We'll debate Kind of the, the struggles that the Pac-12 is dealing with right now after Mel Tucker left and became like the 13th highest paid coach in college football, higher than any other inner conf- uh, coach in the conference. So look for that podcast to come out Monday. You're listening to the Austin Audibles podcast. We'll talk to you soon.
0: Adios, and he goes on may 23rd i want to go back to normal what's normal the paramount plus original series evil returns we've already hunted werewolves demons
1: and now what a baby antichrist <laughs> <laughs> prepare
0: yourself you will not beat awesome. us for the end
1: i have vision somehow they it stop making up.
0: you're <laughs> not gonna survive this
1: evil the final season streaming may 23rd only on paramount plus